Welcome to Ride, the urban mobility podcast. Welcome to Ride, the urban mobility podcast, hosted by me, Martin Carl of Thebetic, and me, Johnny Combe of Payback Ride, the urban mobility podcast, takes a look at the impact of new business models and new technologies on urban mobility from a global business perspective and explores how each new solution fits into the wider mobility ecosystem. The format of Ride is simple. We invite top industry experts to join us for an open and candid conversation. Ride is about the guests, what they have to say and what they bring to the discussion. You can find more details about shows and guests on our website, www.ridemobilitypodcast.com. In 1898, according to an article in Wired magazine, the Winton Motor Carriage Company placed an advertisement in a magazine tempting people to dispense with a horse. The article suggests it's the earliest known automobile ad. Since then, vehicle manufacturers have spent countless billions advertising their cars and building their brands. From the golden age of motorsport, when the old adage of win on Sunday, sell on Monday drove so many buyers into dealerships, to motor shows, once glitzy affairs where automakers hired sometimes aircraft hangar-sized halls at trade fair grounds and spent up to two years planning their publicity campaigns, and more importantly, the critical press days. And from TV advertising, think of those Super Bowl ads in the region of $5.5 million, to sponsorship of major sporting events such as the Champions League or the European or World Cup, where the cost of title sponsorship alone can run into the tens if not hundreds of millions. But as car sales struggle under the weight of a growing number of geopolitical challenges and the even greater weight of ever more stringent emissions and safety regulations, rising fuel costs, changing customer perception and requirements, and the rise of new forms of mobility, automakers face a new challenge, how to promote their products and their brands and maybe even ensure they remain relevant. And they face that challenge at a time of great change in media usage and consumption. No longer can an automaker rely on family sitting down for a scheduled weekly TV show, full-page adverts in glossy car magazines, or glitzy motor show stands. The broadcast TV show has given way to streaming and online. Car magazines are giving way to YouTube reviews, and car shows are giving way to social media influencers. So, how can automakers best promote their products and grow or maintain brand awareness in this fast-evolving media landscape? What's the impact of alternative forms of mobility? And how do changes in vehicle technology affect marketing and promotion as the roar of a combustion engine is replaced by the near-silent acceleration of an electric vehicle and as automakers turn their attention from the driver's car to the driverless car? My name is Andy Willman. I'm the executive producer, or as the Americans would say, showrunner of uh, the Grand Tour on uh, Amazon. Amazon Prime. It seems unlikely, but in case you didn't know it, Top Gear is as much part of British television and entertainment heritage as the 10 o'clock news or Coronation Street. The exploits of Richard Hammond, James May and Jeremy Clarkson, mixing expert car knowledge with tomfoolery, outrageous stunts, extravagant adventures and increasingly high quality filming made the show a major British television sensation. And although it was a British show, it became a hit global export. Clarkson and Hammond launched the revived Top Gear in 2002, joined shortly after by James May. Their time on the show ran until 2015. A year later, they launched a new show, The Grand Tour, on Amazon Prime. Their producer on Top Gear and on The Grand Tour was the fourth member of the trio, Andy Willman. So automakers have been selling a dream for as long as vehicles have existed, best part of 130 years. Obviously, the automotive industry has changed a lot in that time. So too has the way that those vehicle manufacturers market their products. And we've seen that from TV through to broadcast media in different formats, now with streaming and internet uh, services and social media. And we're going to cover all of those in this episode. But I'd like to talk to you about how you see the evolution of the car show and the evolution of marketing vehicles. And going back to that point I made about selling a dream, how do you? How have you seen that change over the, the decades that you've been working in? I think automotive? it was. I think it was easier to sell a dream, um, and then integrate that with what you'd call classic TV programming. Because once upon a time, I mean, as late as the eighties, I think the car was like this family pet. The kids got excited the day it arrived, the washing of it on a Sunday, the kind of we're going somewhere before 
too much air travel. That kind of thing came along. We, me, James, Richard, Jeremy, grew up on that. And I think that worked for a TV show because TV sh- a car TV show was like, as far as the BBC were concerned, it was another aspect of lifestyle and the car was a very important part of the lifestyle. So you would have like a food programme, a holiday programme, uh, Judith Chalmers and what have you. You would have a, the clothes show. And Cars was just another lifestyle product that worked with it. But what's happened is I think food has gone even more exciting as the world opens up. Fashion is fashion. It will endlessly be interesting to fashion people and sort of innovative. Cars struggle in that environment because they're getting a battering for kind of the environmental situation. And also, this is not a battering, but it's, I think it's an important point. Cars became good. They all became, I think, what, what, what would it be? The electronic revolution, when everything worked, you know, it was uh, started to work in the 90s, the noughties, and then suddenly, like the JD Power type survey just disappears because it's not that relevant mm-hmm. anymore. And that in turn has a knock on for car programming. What are you going to do when all cars are okay? You're no longer doing a Vauxhall Chevette versus a Cortina or what have you, where you've got a myriad of hilarious idiosyncrasies to get through. Mm-hmm. You know, you're dealing with a Golf versus a Hyundai who probably got all their electrics from somewhere the same. You know, and that knocks onto yeah. I think car cars lose out against the other lifestyle uh, facets, you know, clothes, what have you travel and i think as well tv for so long was a programmed scheduled event and now that's changed as people have access to on-demand tv but also viewing things on platforms other than televisions watching it online yeah how how have you seen the demand for programs like you produce change as that has evolved we got lucky because because top gear became under our sort of stewardship it became an entertainment show with cars at its heart, but it was the life of three half-wits through cars is what it became. We were accidentally, unknowingly, ahead of that curve, that sort of what you'd call classic TV, motoring TV, reviewing, etc., would die away. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we, weren't, we didn't plan that. We're not bright enough to do that. We're not like... Simon Cowell will sit down and he will plan a blockbuster global show. We just wanted to go, all right, how can we pep up Top Gear? It's, you know, it's a bit old. And we did what we did, but it took us ages to get there. Now, when we moved over to streaming, we were in like pole position to do that because number one, we weren't bothered. We weren't testing cars anymore with anything to do with lead times. It was one of the important things we did on Top Gear. We broke free from the uh, motor industry timetable. Mm-hmm. We waited till the car was on sale in the UK. We weren't interested in the foreign launch, the left-hand drive version right. or anything like that. And it was painful at first, but it paid dividends because and it was actually Jeremy. Jeremy's got, you know, I think people see him as a big sort of TV beast, but he's a print journalist by trade. So he's like, he's been schooled in attention spans and relevance. And he would like, so I'd go, right, we've got to do the new Enzo Ferrari. And he'd go, no, not until it's here. Or, mm-hmm. or new Z4. And he's like, no, we're not. He goes, until somebody can drive to work and see the poster, we're not doing it. And he mm-hmm. was right. We've got to, we, we work, we, you obsess about beating car or auto car. And we were like, no, we're not doing that anymore. So long story short there, when we go into streaming, Streaming has no timetable. Things just sit there and exist. So we were good for that. And the other thing is streamers don't really want a car show because it doesn't fit their global plans. They just want car entertainment. Mm-hmm. So they will never want a review show. It's, it's just useless to them because they're just punting it around. Now, because we do what we do, we were a good fit. And I think the other thing is streamers are, their weakest area is unscripted TV. 
Um, they're brilliant at drama and films and what have you, but it's not their forte because of this global thing. They, they, they struggle with it. Mm -hmm. It's why, you know, when we made, we're getting off topic a bit here, but there we go, Clarkson's Farm was a big hit. And it's a big hit in America and a big hit in everywhere else. They keep looking for those things that it's like, that's English rural, but somehow translates. Mm -hmm. And you can get away with that because everyone can tap into a man and his lifestyle, like Jeremy there. But cars, no, no, you're boxed in all the time. So um, I think we streamers take a position which is cars are about Autogeddon, Grand Tour, Chop Shops, what have you. And then the other areas, the other experts you're going to talk to fill that reviewing space, is my belief. We're recording this at Silverstone Racetrack. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the audio may pick up the occasional roar of an engine as it goes by. For so long, the auto industry has relied on win on Sunday, sell on Monday. Yeah. You talked about the fact that you didn't follow the traditional automaker launch pattern, but you waited till the vehicles are available. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about the content that you feel is so important for the shows. How does the auto industry try and dictate the content that you publish and how do you decide on what content and how do you sort of find that balance between obviously automakers are, are trying to push their products you're trying to get a great show together yeah how does the content come together in all honesty we have a we have a good relationship now where i think if you review a car on tv there are fewer shades of gray if you're doing a what car article you can go accommodation eight out of ten blah, 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 we could do with a bit more like user-friendliness on the dashboard, etc. With TV, it's much more black and white because viewers cannot follow stuff like if you voluntarily read a thousand-word article, you are voluntarily reading a thousand-word article. Mm -hmm. TV's trying to attract you. So you cut a car up into bite-sized chunks when you're reviewing it, and it is more black and white. And then at the end, you kind of have to say, buy it or don't buy it. Now, how the hell do you do something like that with a Golf? Which is like, well, buy it because it works. It's like, you, there's so many cars you can just go, yeah, that's fine, it's got a few faults here and there. So, that was a tricky one at the first because we would come out with a review saying, don't buy it, and they go, hang on, you said this was good and this was good. And we go, no, but at the end of the day, people want to know, right, do I or not? So it's more subjective and it's harsher. Then, Chris Willows... BMW PR, bit of a ledge. I remember we had a couple of run-ins. We did a bad review of, oh, I don't know, X1 or something like that. And the BMW bods were going mental about this. And he was like, leave them be, leave them be. And we were like, thanks, Chris. And he went, look, he said, what I said to them was, they make it okay to like cars. That's what Top Gear are doing. He goes, so we'll take a bad review and we'll get a good one the next car, hopefully, you know, whatever. We'll just, we'll run with it. So we've got a good relationship on that front once, once people understood that. And then I think where car manufacturers do like us is we used to search out what we'd call a car with TV friendliness. E.g., I'll come back to, you know, again to the Golf. There is no point. We'd just use the news section to say, here's a new Golf. Because mm. it's fine. And it costs this. And these are the engines. Skoda bring a Yeti out. We go, hang on a minute. That's a quirky little thing. You know, mm -hmm. you realize you can start making TV from it. Mm -hmm. So we would go to Skoda and go, give us that Yeti. And then we did one of those dar films that Jeremy did where it sort of goes through a burning building. Or we landed a helicopter on its roof. Not anything that anybody's actually going to do. But there was reviewing going on all the time that then pulled people in. And I wanted to ask you about that. How does an automaker balance the risk of having their vehicle absolutely panned on the show versus having the vehicle on the show at all? Because it could be a very risky undertaking, but at count. the same time, having it on TV is, it's, it's a, it's, their car is still on TV. Yeah, I could count on one hand the times we've been refused cars. Right. I think everyone gets it. I mean, I, there was a time when Bentley wouldn't, they pulled a car because we were critical of the Continental. So they pulled whatever the next car was about a week before we were going to do this 
massive road trip in Albania with three big exec saloons. And I remember Jeremy had watched that Have I Got News For You where somebody didn't turn up at the last mm -hmm. minute. So they had a tub of lard mm -hmm. sitting where he was. So we, he brought a Yugo along and pretended it was the Bentley. And Bentley went batshit about the whole thing. But it was a turning point because they realised that we had kind of had the last word. Mm -hmm. And then, thankfully, the PR guy said, right, everyone gets, you know, Bentley Band, were going, no more, we deal with them. And he went, nah, you're never going to win that one. You're never going to win it because they will just move on. But um, other than that, we are, yeah, we're in a good place on that front. So the, where we are in advantage is those quirkier ones and arguments. Your first, your, no, your question was how many times, and like I say, three or four. Right. Three or four, I can remember where somebody's gone, nah, you're not having that car. You mentioned early on in the conversation about the fact that you didn't go on the foreign launches, you didn't wait, and you, sorry, you did wait until a vehicle was in the UK before you, yeah. before you featured it on the show. Yeah. That was when the show was a UK show, obviously now on a streaming platform. It's a global show. So what's the difference now between uh, the way you produce the program and the audiences you target versus when it's a UK show on a UK TV station? The only stipulation we got, I mean, again, we'd review cars that were a bit more, well, I suppose all cars are global, aren't they? You knew in America, if they don't sell a particular Alpha or BMW, that they're still, the enthusiasts will still want to watch it. But the only stipulation from Amazon was globalness of the show. So if we said to them, we're going to shoot a show in the UK, they'd go, oh, do you have to? Mm -hmm. And we're like, well, it doesn't, you know, the UK is still global to someone else. Right. They couldn't get that being right. like American. They couldn't really get that. So if we say, right, we're going to Morocco with these cars. Great. That's great. And, you know, right, we're going to China with these cars. That's great. We're doing this film in Wales this week. Do you really have to? And it was all this sort of, mm -hmm. quite mm -hmm. frustrating actually. That was the only stipulation. And then I think your portion of reviews, straight reviews drops a little. Right. Because they do want that travel and adventure element. Mm -hmm. And we'd shown the way with Top Gear that old crappy cars that are gonna break down give you TV. So we were sort of, we had three strands, which is the big exotica, the quirky little things, the Yeti or a Fiesta. Not that it's quirky, but, you know, it's an everyday car that we could do nonsense with or um, really old cheap stuff. I'm keen to know what the automakers get from it and also what you get from the show in terms of the data and the, uh, the information on viewer profiles and so on, because... If an automaker is putting a car onto your show, they want to know who's seen it and who's likely to buy it. With right. a TV show, there's a lot of data to suggest that the viewers are in so-and-so marketing categories, age groups, and this, this number yeah. of viewers. Yeah. How does that work with streaming? Uh, if there is data, I know they've got data. I'd love to see it because they never give us a drop of data. I know Amazon can tell you to the second how many people are watching something or, and then if they like fast forward through something they know all of it but we never get told it and they know what other things people like because yeah. they know everything uh, absolutely and Netflix the same they all know what people are doing but they never give us viewing figures they never give us data um, I think partly those big tech led companies which streamers are are secretive mm-hmm the second thing is your viewing figures, even if you're like number one streaming show in the world, you're still small compared to um, traditional broadcasting numbers. You know, I know Top Gear, when we were at our peak, we'd get about nine or 10 million a week just in the UK on a show, which is like mm. daft. But we're not getting that with Amazon because people have got to pay to watch it. We're not getting close to that, I would imagine. But they never tell you because A, the figure is either disappointing or if me as a broadcast, as a showmaker finds out that we're number one around the world, I'm just going to go tell everyone. <laughs> and then they're going to go, oh, thanks for that, pal. You know, it's like you've now pissed off the people making The Boys <laughs> or whatever <laughs> else they're making. Um, so they're very secretive. What do the manufacturers get out of it? I think sometimes it's a good review. 
because there are still enthusiasts out there, um, they'll get a good review from it. And I'd like to think, particularly Jeremy, you can bring a car to life. After all these years, he can still find a way, like A.A. Gill could review a restaurant, he could still find a way of doing it that's kind of better. You know, mm -hmm. he could still personalise it and make people go, right, I've, I don't know everything about that car at the end of it, but I know it's got a vibe about it that I like. So they get that. But the, the thing they get the most, I think you come back to the um, Chris Willow's point, is we make it okay to like cars. Mm -hmm. Now, you can do that with a £100 banger. There's nobody's, that doesn't help a manufacturer in a showroom, but it does help you go, actually, cars are quite something, mm -hmm. which they are. We're going to do a show in a year or so's time about sort of goodbye to the engine. And you think, that's actually going to be a very emotional show because I know it's a villainous thing as far as people are concerned, but it's been something. Mm -hmm. It's been an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're not going to kick and scream, but we're just going to go, let's pay it due respect. And I wanted to talk to you about that briefly because obviously the automotive industry is changing, the way people consume media is changing. And so, so there's a big shift both in the type of program that you make and also the type of product that people buy or maybe even don't buy if we think about mobility services and we think longer term to possibly even autonomous vehicles, yeah. which will be a whole new interesting We're angle done. for uh, <laughs> for your programming. Yeah. But I just wonder if um, you're under any pressure to look at these other uh, forms of mobility and bring them into your show, or if you're just sort of working in your niche and happy to let others do do their thing. Yeah, we're working in, definitely working in our own niche. First well, I don't want to. I don't want to suggest it's a niche now, but it is becoming yeah, a smaller, yeah, yeah. smaller as car sales oh, down yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. No, we are working our, mining our seam, shall we say that. And then um, we get no pressure for Amazon because we have editorial control about what we do. But I think we can see the writing. Is all, there is a day when we'll just go to the pub because we'll be the last horse trader in Detroit, you know, that mm -hmm. we're done. It's just mm -hmm. a, it's time to get out when you mm -hmm. get out. And when cars become autonomous or all electric, what do we do? Mm -hmm. All the dashboards are like bloody iPads. Mm -hmm. you know? What is that? Mm -hmm. There is nothing for us to say at that point. Mm -hmm. And then we'll all move on. But then we've had a good run, 20 odd years. Yeah, know? yeah. You know, we've had a good run and we are, we were there to make a show for 20 odd, you know, we didn't think it would last this mm -hmm. long. We thought mm -hmm. we'd get five years out of it. Mm -hmm. So we're not here to try to review something that is becoming by necessity transport. Yeah. But the cars are still here, you're mm -hmm. still here, sales are declining. Yeah. So it will be interesting to see how vehicle manufacturers promote their products in, in that more, much more challenging environment. I mean, we obviously got a lot of things going on at the moment, but there is a general trend. And we'll see when we speak to the other. Um, I'd like to know what their, what their plans are. I'd love to know what they think about things like car sharing. Right. How serious it is. Yeah. It's a thing that, you know, we all, we all know it's a hoary old argument that this second most important thing you buy or most valuable thing you buy sits on the pavement depreciating. Mm -hmm. We all know that one. It's a fair point. So I'd love to know what manufacturers think about getting involved in car sharing. Yeah. Because it seems logical. Um, and nobody wants to really... Anecdotally, I don't see as many kids taking tests or rushing to pass a driving test like they used to. Mm -hmm. um, so there's not that like, oh, the car gives me freedom. They don't think about, we used to do that when we were 18 because it was the freedom. Mm -hmm. And that began in America in the 50s mm -hmm. and what have you. And that, my daughter goes, well, I can get an Uber. So she's done, you know. While the Wilman Clarkson era Top Gear pulled in up to 10 million viewers on a Sunday night, we can't discuss viewing figures for the Grand Tour because they aren't published. But it's a very different story online. I'm Scott Mansell, uh, founder of Drive61. We run a number of YouTube channels that get over 15 million views per month.
Scott, how did Driver 61 come about? I'm an ex-professional racing driver. So from the ages of eight until 25, my sole focus was on trying to get to Formula One. I got reasonably far. I mean, I tested with Red Bull back in 2004 uh, for the following season of GP2, F2, as it's now called. But honestly, we, we ran out of cash along the way. As uh, as I'm sure lots of the audience know, motorsport is very expensive, especially at those levels. And uh, although I did get offered uh, like the drive, we still needed to to find and raise some sponsorship for, for that drive. Um, so unfortunately, that was about as far as, as I'd got uh, in motorsport. I went and raced in the US in Indy Lights and, you know, had some kind of half seasons, but never really had the, the cash to do it. That being said, I absolutely loved my racing career. I've driven 25 or 30 different ex Formula One cars, loads of, you know, GT cars. I've had, you know, had a very privileged time while I was racing. That then led on to me quite naturally becoming a coach. So I'd work with amateur gentleman drivers, as we would call them. Um, but after a few years of doing that and traveling around, uh, I mean, I traveled around the, the, the world. Um, I was very fortunate for, for three or four years coaching and racing with other drivers. But in the end of it, I just, you know, I, I realized that I couldn't scale myself. Um, I was running myself ragged. There was a lot of traveling. It was very busy. And I wanted to um, build something that could scale beyond just myself. Um, and so I started uh, a blog, a website called driver61.com, where I created articles specifically targeted at amateur racing drivers. So I made um, tutorials about how to trail brake, how to left foot brake, what the perfect racing line was. Um, and then this naturally led me into uh, video. I didn't particularly like writing. Um, and I thought I could explain things just more quickly, more easily and better to the audience through video. And so I took all of the tutorials that I'd written and created video versions of those, uh, which we then put on the website and uh, they started to gain some traction. So that's the background to driver61.com, but what does it look like now? So those tutorial videos um, were very valuable to a very niche audience. And really, they were just part of the sales funnel for our driver training programs that we would run here in the UK. Then COVID came along early 2020 and all of the circuits closed. And so all of our revenue closed. I mean, we we had a, quite a lot of success with the driver training programs. Um, we worked with 120 drivers a year. Um, specifically, so it's quite a quite a big operation, especially in you know quite a small market there. But then when all the circuits closed, I didn't really know what to do. So I thought, well, we've got this YouTube channel. At the time, it had uh, sixty or seventy thousand subscribers. We were getting maybe two hundred thousand views per month, uh, but it was very niche content, as I mentioned to you. So I thought, well, how can I take my knowledge, my understanding of how to drive quickly on track? and make that a bit more broad in its appeal, make it a bit more interesting to uh, to a, a wider audience. And so I started creating videos that broke down uh, F1 driver's technique. So I did a video on Senna, Schumacher, Alonso, um, and they they just took off. They, they went crazy. So within a few months, we went from getting 200,000 views a month, which was still quite good, up to five or six million views a month. And then I switched the ads on and started doing a few sponsorship deals. And I realized that we could actually make some revenue from YouTube and from that platform. And since then, we've just transitioned. Um, we've actually just closed down our driver training um, department. Uh, and now we're just focused on becoming a, a larger media company. So since then, um, Driver61 gets around 100 million views uh, a year. We've launched that same channel in Spanish with a Spanish presenter, which has just started to gain traction. We only launched that um, six weeks ago. We launched an automotive channel called Driven Media, soon to be renamed to Garage 61, uh, where we um, take an entertaining look at the automotive industry. We uh, we build some of our own cars. We modify some some cars. We also do mini documentaries about interesting aspects of of, of car tech and engineering. Um, which you know, last month uh, that channel did nine million views. Um, 
So we've got a target across um, the, the the channels there. We've also got a sim racing channel as well, um, which focuses on training sim drivers. Uh, but the target there is um, over the next three years to produce 5 billion minutes of watch time, um, which sounds like a huge number. I mean, it is a huge number, but we're definitely on target to do that. And um, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. It's a lot of fun. We've talked to Andy Wilman about the lack of data in TV and streaming in particular. You're online. What's your experience? On YouTube specifically is where I know the the analytics and the data the best. Uh, you know, we have obviously also have assets on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. But YouTube, you get an incredible amount of data. Um, obviously, you get all the, the demographics. You get the age of your viewers and location and things like that. But what's more important to us and more important to creating better content for our audiences is the retention data we can see specific points in each and every video where viewers are more engaged or less engaged um, and so we use that and we spend a lot of time analyzing that information to understand what sits well with our audience and we really really focus in on creating a very defined understanding of our avatar of our audience so that's what it's great for really and how do you use the analytics and how does that data shape your content uh, so we we use it in a number of ways i guess the you know if you look at the top um the first thing that we use it for is understanding how much our audience enjoys a specific topic so one of the key metrics to be successful on youtube is the click-through rate um, so on the home screen, you will have videos presented to you. Um, and that's the way to grow quickly on YouTube is to get recommended by YouTube itself. You don't have to force it to happen, but if you create a great video, it will just get pushed out to millions and millions of people. Um, so the first way that we define whether the audience really clicks with a particular topic or a particular video that we've been working on is in the first I don't know, 10 minutes, we see what the click-through rate is of that video uh, and compare it to other videos that we've produced in the same time frame. That's mainly for understanding, you know, how good is the thumbnail, but really it's about how interesting is this topic? Is it inherently interesting? It doesn't matter if you've got the world's best thumbnail, if the topic isn't interesting and doesn't sit well with your specific audience who YouTube is going to show that video to first, then it's never going to get any traction. So that's the, the first piece of data that we use. And then from there on in, it's really just understanding how well that video retains the audience. So we get um, we get graphs and we can look at them from different traffic sources, but we, we get graphs in the back end and you can literally watch the video and see where users or viewers are, are falling off. Um, so we really go into detail about that. For example, we just put out a video where we we actually um, put eight wheels on a Catrum to see if it was going to be quicker on a racetrack. And we actually formatted that video in the wrong way in terms of the structure of the video. So the, the title was something like, do eight wheels, do eight tires make you faster on on, on track? Um, and so we we the, the video started off, we introduced the problem, we spoke about what we were going to do to the car, we showed the car and, and, and all of that. Um, there were some jokes in there. And then... Uh, probably 30% of the way through the video, we did the comparison on, on a track. And then after that point, we took the car out and showed the problems navigating around town, like trying to park the car, just all, all these issues that you would typically find. Um, but what happened was the retention was up at like 70% until we, we gave the information about whether the car was quicker on track or not. And then it started to decline after that point so it was literally quite flat until that point we held the attention really well and then it fell off so the key learning there was what we should have actually structured the video differently was that we should have moved all the issues first and then gave away the the, the time at the end of the video so i mean it's not very often actually that we make a mistake like that but it was we actually we had some issues behind the scenes that meant that we had to film the video in that way you mentioned that you've added an automotive channel do you see the automotive industry making a notable shift from traditional media to online? Our automotive channel is only 10 months old, um, so I haven't had too much attention on the automotive side. But on the motorsport side, um, certainly I can see the traditional media outlets there moving across 
um, to to video, specifically YouTube. I would say, I, I love YouTube because you're. It, it. I see it as something like halfway between Facebook, for example, and TV. You've actually got the user engaged. They will sit there for ten minutes and watch one of your videos, compared to like Instagram or Facebook or TikTok, where the user is being interrupted. You know, they're just scanning through stuff. But um, to go back to the original question, yes, I can see, you know, like Autosport and Motorsport Network are, are doing content for for YouTube. Um, so they are transitioning across, but they're doing it in a very traditional way. And um, that doesn't, at the moment, work particularly well on, on YouTube. Do you think there's still a place for traditional media? And if so, what is it? Yeah, of course. I mean, they it, it's it's just about creating quality content content right and i think um give given time um and given understanding the platforms of course they will they will make um content that suits that platform i think um you know obviously if you've got a magazine or or something like that you've you've almost got a it's not a captive audience but you're presenting that content to them and there you know i don't know 10 different magazines whereas on youtube it's uh, the ultimate meritocracy so if you don't create the content that suits that platform and there are subtle differences between youtube facebook instagram um but really it's about creating interesting content that engages the audience if that isn't done specifically and very well if your content is i don't know five percent worse than our content you know that will fall away and it's like it's all in the it's all in the details to be honest we you know if our if our click through rate is 0.3 of a percent down we'll change it um so it's all in the details and then that's the results of that are kind of outweighed it might be the video might get five times the number of views so it's all in the details to get massive um exposure you've talked about introducing an automotive channel but driver 61 at its heart is uh, rested firmly on motorsport motorsport's changing do you see electrification changing your editorial focus no i don't think so um i think we will always focus on the audience um and if you know formula e or some other kind of motorsport comes to the top and the audience is more interested in that then we will we will go with what the audience wants we're really really focused on working through understanding the audience as much as we can and so we will just follow we will just follow that i think that's you know the right way to do it we won't just hang on to formula 1 or whatever it might be um you've got to you've got to understand the audience so on on Garage 61 on the, on the automotive channel, um, we've actually found that um, EV content doesn't work particularly well for us. The audience just doesn't engage with it. When we you know, do a, a, a video on a, a big V8 or something, or we're hacking around in a Catrum, um, it tends to do really well. So I think if we were going to do anything on EVs, for example, we would just set up a different or- a, a different channel because it's a different audience. Scott, thanks very much. Absolute pleasure. I'm Matthew Watson. I'm Chief Content Officer at CarWow, and I'm responsible for the CarWow YouTube channel, and I'll present it as well. CarWow is a website for buying and selling cars, and it's also the publisher of an eye-watering number of hours of video content on its eponymous YouTube channel. I mentioned mainstream automotive, and there's plenty of that on CarWow, but you'll also find Matt herring around in high-performance vehicles, And let's be honest, while Matt's reviews of mainstream road cars make strong video content, the high-performance supercars make great viewing. And I'd urge you to watch Matt put the Rimac Nevera up against the Ferrari SF90 Stradale. So CarWow is a platform where you can buy and sell your car. You can go onto CarWow and you can compare offers on new cars from all our dealers across the UK. And you can also sell your car. So all you have to do is upload some photos give a brief description then uh, 3,000 or so dealers will actually bid on your car and you just pick the best offer and they'll come take it away and put them in your account a bit like we buy any car apart from you'll get a better price and a nicer service and I'm not Philip Schofield <laughs> so you mentioned the UK there but it's on YouTube YouTube's a, a global platform well actually I mentioned the UK we also have CarWow website in Germany and in Spain um, and we do YouTube Germany and Spain and the UK to uh, raise brand awareness for marketing for for CarWow. 
the YouTube channel was started in 2016. Actually, it was started in 2014, but we didn't put any videos up until 2016, which is when I joined. Okay, and the video content is uh, one of the draws into uh, the CarWow website, which is much more than just a video content channel. It's a car sales channel, right? Yeah, so basically the CarWow website is, um, you can buy, you can even sell your current car through CarWow. So you go on CarWow and you can check out the latest offers on pretty much any any car on sale and see how much you can save on it through CarWow and then buy your car through CarWow. And you can also sell your car through CarWow. Works in the same way as we buy any car, only you get um, usually a better price for your car that you're trying to sell. In terms of how the content's generated, we spoke to Andy Willman earlier, who's the producer of Top Gear and Grand Tour. And he explained to us how those episodes come about. It's quite uh, ad hoc, the ideas come through production, meetings and so on, and then they put them together. It's not PR driven. It's not driven by the automakers that are trying to push cars onto their onto their uh, programs and into their programming. Talk a little bit about how it works for you. So it's, it's halfway between that and um, halfway between maybe what the PRs are trying to push. So basically we are interested in new cars. So we're not just about entertainment, we're interested in new cars because there's a lot of search volume around new cars. So when a new car's released, we want to be able to drive it and do a film on it. We won't do every single new car. We want to make sure that it's going to at least get, A, get quite a lot of views, or B, it's going to be a car that people are going to be buying quite a lot of, and we need that content for our website to help people with their research. Another element that we have is more entertainment-led, which will follow more like what Top Gear do, where we come up with ideas of what we want to do, and then we ask the manufacturer to lend us their cars for those particular feature ideas. How does the the, the data aspect of what you do work? Uh, Andy was telling us that for TV and for streaming, he gets absolutely no data whatsoever. Um, obviously, with BBC, for example, there's viewing figures, and some manufacturers can, to a degree, work out how many people might watch a program on an evening and whether they're in certain marketing brackets and so on. But we learned also that online you get stacks of data, really, really detailed level of data. Talk about what you get and how you use that. Okay, so you get so much data on absolutely everything. I can see how people are watching a video, where they're clicking out, where they're rewinding it to watch it again, what bits of content worked, what didn't work. I can see um, pretty much, I can put a video live and I will know within two or three minutes if it's going to be a hit or a miss. It's that clear, you get real-time data. In some ways you can get too much data and you get bogged down in the data. There's a lot of hindsight with data, that went well because we got the figures that said it went well and you can forget that actually what makes great content is the same as TV, it's that editorial now, it's what is interesting, what's going to be interesting, what are people going to find interesting, otherwise you're chasing, you're copying what went viral last time and that isn't the way it works. <laughs> it, it's really funny, my, uh, my CEO, uh, I remember when I uh, started quite early on, he goes, oh, you should do this video, uh, do that video, make it go viral. And it's like, if I could do that, I'd be a billionaire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's like picking the stocks that are gonna go huge, no one knows. <laughs> well, the YouTube channel has been around since 2016. Mm -hmm. We've seen the types of cars that people buy uh, and the types of cars that are being offered to consumers is changing. 2010 was obviously the year when the current generation of electric vehicles came to market. Have you seen the, the demand, the, the types of searches that people are making? Has that reflected the fact that in the last few years in particular, there's a lot more demand for electric vehicles? Yeah, so there's always been like a hardcore uh, interest in electric vehicles, like early adopters. And I noticed that when we put like a video on an electric car, the view through, so the length of time people spend watching the video is longer. Two reasons, one might be because actually there's a high proportion of people who are watching it to actually uh, make a buying decision. So they're more invested in watching it rather than just for entertainment. Another thing is, is that there is that real, and at the moment, an enthusiast element in electric vehicles by those early adopters who are more likely to watch a video through for longer. Um, however, Views overall for an electric version is still lower, I would say, than for an internal combustion engine cars. Right. I think people still find enthusiasts overall in the car market, and general car enthusiasts are still more interested in the internal combustion engine than electric vehicles. 
That's interesting. Have you also noticed a growing interest in car reviews online in general? Is, are your viewing figures going up? Are you seeing... Uh, and the reason I ask is that there are fewer, if any, car review programmes on mainstream television now. And at the same time, we've got a lot of, a lot of interest in online reviews of cars. I wonder if you can share some thoughts on why you think online success or why it's not working on TV. Okay, so TV is mainly about entertainment now, especially for um, car content, because I remember when I was a kid and I'd watch Top Gear and I'd want to find out, when I say kid, this is like in the 80s, right? 80s, early 90s. And I'd want to watch something about a specific car and I'd have to watch a whole bloody Top Gear show and most of it I wasn't interested in. What you can do now, I can just go online and watch some video about any car that I'm specifically interested in because I can search for that car and it'll be there. That's the difference. So there's no way TV can compete with that. And there's also a little bit of a flip side in terms of car entertainment content. You find that when you try to do the real entertainment stuff, on the whole, you can't compete as well as TV because A, you don't have the budget, and B, the way the, um, especially with YouTube algorithm works, part, part of it is search, quite a big part of it is search, is that people don't know that they're searching for specific things and rather than being sat down and served something that they might be interested in. For instance, I can do videos which we think are brilliant ideas and they would work well on TV and the view through is quite strong, but there's just not enough people interested in that topic. And uh, is everything that you publish on Carwell, I mean, it's in the name, but is it all cars? mainly cars like i'd say about like 95 percent. we do do some motorbikes where we'll drag race some cars against some motorbikes um we have done i've done a, some reviews of some hgvs which have done surprisingly well but it's 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 getting the title right whereas if i for instance i did um, one on an electric uh, mercedes what is it it's the e-actros mid-size um hgv so i did that as a review a straight review and it did pretty poorly it did about eight hundred thousand views or something However, when I was on the same event, I got their big Actros, the big um, diesel-powered one, and I did a review on that. But with that, I was able to do the title, The World's Most Luxurious HGV. And so people will be searching for that, or if that title is thrown up in front of them, they're like, oh, I'd like to see what The World's Most Luxurious HGV is like. That's done four million views. That's a little bit like, one was like a really kind of useful bit of information about this new electric truck. Not many people are that interested in a new electric truck. What people are interested in is what is the most luxurious HGV in the world. There's obviously uh, much more to mobility than cars, mm. and cars are part of mobility. Yeah. We're seeing people, particularly in cities, turning to ride-sharing, ride-hailing, yeah. micro-mobility solutions. Uh -huh. Is any of that being reflected in the searches that are being made on your site? Are you seeing any of that? change in people's perspectives interest in cars or when people come to Carwow are they coming because they're interested in cars so people are coming to the Carwow website because they're thinking about buying or selling their current car that's why people are coming to them we're getting we're getting an increase uh, massive increase in electric vehicles so it's still not like the majority um, but we've seen a massive increase one is because more manufacturers are producing more electric cars we are all going to be buying electric cars soon because you won't be able to buy anything else in terms of like e-mobility and stuff like that then it's it's cars you know people aren't coming to car by looking at scooters and um bicycles however on my own personal channel i've done a review of a um go cycle because I've, I've got a go cycle and that's done not loads of views compared to my car stuff so it's i think the video's like three and a half three three hundred fifty thousand views but the amount of people that i spoke to who bought a go cycle from that and i spoke to go cycle afterwards about how many sales it generated for them mm -hmm. was quite incredible right so but people who were watching that were very much interested in buying an electric bike and they watched that not for entertainment they watched it for as a buying guide we talked about the difference between broadcast media and online give us a little bit of insight into how online and videos is different from print media and the sort of the classic car magazine that people might have turned to even just a few years ago for, for reviews of cars. So one of the reasons why I think Carway has been so successful, like we're the most watched car channel in the world on YouTube. In 2021, we had 705 million views. So yeah, it's, it's pretty big. Now, the way it sort of works is it's a, it, it 
does two jobs. It's a bit of a blend. We provide that information that you got from car magazines, the traditional kind of car consumer magazines like What Car. So you, you can do that research, but then it also combines the element that you would get from the enthusiast magazines like Top Gear or, or Car, which is a bit more fun. Like we do drag races, we do off-road battles. So it combines these two elements. And what both serve to do is raise brand awareness for CarWow and how CarWow can help you as a consumer to make sure that you're, um, when you're buying a car, you're paying a right, the right price for it. So we use it for marketing. So those people directly doing their research and those people who are just watching for entertainment, but we tell them about what CarWow is so that when they speak to their friends and family, because these people are going to be the influencers in their family and friend circle about cars because they're the car enthusiasts, they will recommend CarWow and say, check right. out CarWow because it can help you save money on your next car. So we've looked at full-length, big-budget television, and we've looked at specialist and mainstream automotive content online and on YouTube. So the obvious progression, then, is to social media. Hi, I'm Jack Carter. I'm the automotive lead here at TikTok. It's interesting to hear you say automotive lead, because I've got to admit that in the circles in which I move, TikTok plays no role. It's used mainly by teenage kids. So talk to me about how automotive is marketed on TikTok and why it's being, why it's being marketed on TikTok. Yeah, so um, TikTok is a, it's a platform of creative expression, uh, I think. The main point of TikTok is it's a platform of discovery. So users come on to the platform to find out new things, a range of topics and cars being one of those. You don't come on to TikTok to find out what your friends are doing or to connect with people, even though that function is part of the experience. The main point of it is just to come on and, and enjoy your time when you are at TikTok, so the algorithm that powers the For You page, which is like your home page, is basically tailored to what you like to watch. And so the content that you get delivered is really about the stuff that you enjoy watching. And so what we've started to see is this emergence of, of automotive as a category. You know, it's a place where people can watch things about cars and learn things about cars. And it's a real hub uh, for car enthusiasts. Um, and also non-car enthusiasts alike uh, to really kind of find out what really kind of drives their, their kind of uh, interest within the category. And then outside of that, for brands, they're starting to see this kind of surge in popularity. Um, and they see TikTok as a place to really express themselves creatively and a way to engage with, a, with an entirely new audience. And so what I've kind of seen over the last, you know, 24 months or so since I've been at TikTok is this growth within the automotive industry and an appreciation of what TikTok can offer them as a brand. And interestingly, we've actually seen the emergence of the likes of Lamborghini, Bentley, Ferrari, McLaren, so of the supercars within the automotive world. They've actually kind of come to TikTok almost more quickly than the more volume and commercial brands. It often surprises people, um, but they understand the, the need for brand relevance. They aren't necessarily looking at selling a car on TikTok straight away. So they're advertising more to the buyer of tomorrow rather than the buyer of today. And then they you know, realize within 10, 15 years time, they'll make sure that that person chooses a, a Bentley over a Rolls Royce or you know, a Lamborghini uh, over a Ferrari. So it, it, they've kind of set the stall. But in, in the last kind of six to eight months, we've started to see the more kind of volume and commercial OEMs catch up. Um, and they're kind of really expressing themselves across the platform now. Yeah, we spoke to Andy Willman, who was producer of Top Gear and now the Grand Tour, and we're talking 70-minute TV shows or Amazon shows. We've spoken to Matt from CarWow and Scott from Driver61, maybe 15-minute uh, video clips. You're more in the realm of 15 seconds, right? Yeah, TikTok is short-form content. You are actually able to create a video up to 10 minutes in length. But generally, it's kind of around 20, 30 seconds is where the sweet spot is for brands. Uh, interesting, you can, obviously, you can go shorter, and sometimes that works even better. BW have an account called Tiny Football Car, uh, forming really well on the platform. And that was all based around, uh, during the Euros last year, they had uh, a mini BW as an ID buzz. Used to drive on with the ball before the match uh, and take it basically for the players to then kick off with. Uh, and it kind of became a personality in its own right and then created a TikTok profile off the back of that. And their recent post was around about kind of eight to 10 seconds in length. And it's just kind of 
been kind of smashing all their expectations, millions of views and, and millions of likes. So there is a real range, you know, equally Bentley are creating content, which is up to a minute in length and telling a really nice narrative and a really nice story. Um, and that's, you know, getting as good engagement. So there is a real range. The point being, what is the story that you're telling and is it engaging? Would users want to watch it? And if the answer is yes, then it doesn't really matter too much how long it is. Um, and we've kind of seen a real variety. So in short, we are short form, but there is the ability to go slightly longer um, and tell a bit more of a brand story. I'm sure the creatives at the automakers know what they're doing, but for me, it's difficult to understand how an industry that has spent so many millions of dollars in the past on any one single advertising campaign is now able to condense its message into just a few seconds. How do you work with those automakers to ensure that the message is delivered? And do you guide them at all? It's a question we get asked all the time, and it's a, a big part of my job and my role at TikTok is, is helping automotive brands and their agencies develop content and creative that will work on the platform. In many ways, it's kind of relearning the script when it comes to, to car advertising, because TikTok is about that engagement uh, and about that entertainment. But much like every other bit of marketing, it's still about being very single-minded in the message that you're delivering. The question arises, well, how do we do that on TikTok? Because what we often say is adapting content doesn't work quite as well as creating native content for the platform. So we would recommend working with creators. Um, and you know, creators are very much like creative directors. They understand how the platform works. They understand what great content looks like. And so OEMs can lean into their expertise and get them to create content for them. Uh, and it enables them to be developing creative and assets that they know will really engage with the audience on TikTok and will be kind of creative uh, at their very heart. So we, we kind of work with a, with a range of, of different automotive brands in trying to understand how can you get the most from the platform and what are the tools available to you to really, uh, I guess, see the complete benefit of, of TikTok. So creators is one, as we mentioned, but also trying to empower and tool up their creative and social agencies so they can go away and develop bespoke campaigns as well, um, which is obviously going to be kind of the long term uh, and, and sustainable approach when it comes to creative. And I know I, meant, I mentioned earlier about adapted assets not always working quite as well. And that's true. But there are occasions that actually you've got some you know, really great uh, campaigns or, or films that are running on other channels. There are ways in which you can edit them and, you know, maybe make them slightly faster paced in their narrative, add a few titles on so then they feel a bit more, what we say, TikTok ready. I've seen a clip where a creator uses uh, reviews and feedback that Porsche has received to, to pull together a piece of music. Um, you mentioned Bentley as well. Those are two brands that are at the top of their market. But can you talk to me a little bit about the mainstream brands and how they're using TikTok? Yeah, interesting, actually, just on Bentley and Porsche, they uh, last week published a collaboration uh, video. Uh, and it's often something that we see between creators on the platform. So you have two well-known creators collaborating in the same video, and it always performs pretty well, that type of content anyway. And we suggested doing the same. And so that was a really nice moment, you know, kind of two really premium car brands collaborating on the platform. Firstly, it shows the investment they're giving towards TikTok from a, from a time perspective and a creative perspective, but also shows you know, what the power of the platform is uh, when you get these two type of brands coming together uh, and creating that, that video. So check it out. It's on both their feeds. From a more commercial perspective, uh, Stellantis as a group uh, have really uh, seen the benefit of TikTok as a platform. They have been pretty active for the last kind of uh, eight to 12 months, they kicked off with a Persian Fiat campaign and more recently had developed campaigns with Citroen and Vauxhall, uh, which has been great to see. They're very active, uh, looking at how they can always uh, also move to an always on strategy, which is often the next phase when talking to OEMs. You know, how can we go beyond supporting campaigns? Alongside that, VW Group are starting to become really active uh, across the platform, you know, whether that's through Skoda or through VW itself. Uh, we're starting to see uh, more frequency of campaigns uh, alongside the likes of Toyota and, and Dacia. So there's a, a real kind of diversity of brands in terms of volume brands, uh, and I expect that kind of number to, to keep increasing. 
we're seeing a huge shift in the types of propulsion for vehicles and we're heading rapidly towards electrification. Are you finding that that's reflected on TikTok? Or are you finding that people are searching for electric vehicles or over, over other types of propulsion, for example? Sustainability is huge across the platform, along with EV. What we found is 89% of our users said that actually sustainability is really important when choosing an automotive brand. So it's kind of at the forefront of our audience's mind. Um, and that's kind of when I, when I talk to OEMs, I say you've got to be talk, thinking about your EV credentials um, and talking about your EV models and EV range. When it comes to general mobility, obviously that's a, that's a, a growing uh, industry. Um, and we've kind of seen that go from strength to strength over the last 12 months or so. Uh, and that's similarly reflected across the platform, whether that's kind of on-demand services when it comes to hiring cars, whether that's e-mobility scooters. Generally across the platform, when it comes to electric mobility, there's a, there's a genuine interest across TikTok, and I only see that going one way. Yeah, and on that point about micromobility, uh, you know, in addition to ride-hailing and ride-sharing, there is that uh, growth of micromobility and e-scooters, e-bikes, and so on. Are you seeing a growing interest in that in, the, in either the way that the brands are delivering on TikTok or the demand for it in the search and so on? And I, I guess the people that would use those are probably more of your demographic than people who are likely to buy cars. Interestingly, I think on the demographic point, we've, what, we've, what we've actually seen is there's been a huge aging up of our audience. And that comes back to the fact it's an entertainment platform, right? So actually, there's a diversity of content. And so there's a diversity of age. And that's kind of has been part of my role is educating OEMs that actually we are, we are a platform which has your audience on it. Uh, and we've aged up hugely um, over the time that I've been here. So that's kind of just the one the point I would make. And actually, we're kind of now mirroring the automotive uh, audience, which is obviously what we want to hear from the OEM perspective. When it comes to mobility, uh, Citroen actually launched a campaign a couple of months back, and that's for, for their Ami model, um, which actually isn't a car. Um, it's just a form of mobility. You may have seen it. Uh, it's a very distinctive looking vehicle. Um, it can get up to only 40 miles an hour. It has a very kind of short range, but the cost is very small. It's minimal. And so it's a new way of getting around cities, basically. Um, I think the monthly cost can be as little as, your, as what your phone bill costs. So really, it's opening up to an entirely new audience and potentially those who haven't really considered driving before. Um, and actually, it's a new perception of how people get around, which I think is an interesting take because that's only going to become more and more popular um, as we see more cities shift away from the traditional driving, you know, encouraging people to cycle, to walk, or take public transport to work. Well, there's that perfect opportunity to cars like, for cars like the Ami and brands like Citroen to come in and, and offer a solution. So we've started to see that happening across TikTok, and I expect that to continue to, do, to, continue to do so as well. What can brands get out of being on TikTok other than just spreading their message, spreading the word that they want to spread? What, what's the data that they can get back? How can they understand who's looking at it and what works and what doesn't? Yeah, it's a really good question. What I've seen recently is when I first came into the role, often the question I, I was asked is, is why TikTok? You know, and they kind of, a lot of the automotive brands just didn't feel it was a relevant platform for them for many reasons. You know, the first one, as I mentioned, around the perception of our demographic, the second being creative. It's, you know, it, you have to go that extra mile to create content for TikTok. But I've now seen a shift across from why to how. Um, and that's a significant one because they realize the opportunity that TikTok presents. And so the question is, well, then how do we get on the platform? How do we to do it properly? And then, you know, in return, what they're then tapping into is an entirely new, new audience. And they're finding, you know, ways in which the, this audience engages with them. Uh, and they're also testing different type of content that they you know, haven't run previously. It's a new way of communicating. So they start to understand the behaviors of our users. They start to understand the, the decisions that are involved when purchasing a car, the steps that are involved. We know it's a long, a long path to purchase. This, is, this doesn't happen over the course of a couple of days. It's, it, it takes a course over a few months. And so then TikTok can play a role in that journey, whether that's you know, within the discovery and the inspiration part, or whether it's further down the funnel in the sustain and conversion. So all of that data 
can be kind of collected and obviously in, inherently then start to improve marketing methods and strategies. As we start to hone and refine those, we can kind of find better ways and tailor uh, an individual approach for each automotive brand to ensure they're kind of communicating to the audience in the right way for them. Jack, thanks very much. In 2015, Top Gear was one of the most successful British television exports, and YouTube seemed young and inexperienced at just 10 years old. But TikTok hadn't even been released. Seven years later, the media looks very different, and so too does mobility. Automakers and mobility brands alike need to know how to remain relevant, they need to know where to promote themselves, they need to know what messages to promote, and they need to know how to do it. Top Gear no longer pulls in 10 million viewers. It might still hit around 3 to 4 million, but its focus is primarily on car-based fun rather than on cars. YouTube began as a rough and ready video sharing site, but it's now becoming a broadcaster. Business of Apps reports YouTube generating $19.7 billion revenue in 2020, up 30.4% year-on-year, and over 2.3 billion people access YouTube once a month. And since its launch five years ago, TikTok has grown to 1.2 billion monthly active users in the fourth quarter of 2021, and is forecast to reach 1.5 billion by the end of 2022. The question for automakers and increasingly mobility providers seeking to promote their products and services is not just should they choose between broadcast media, online channels and social media. It's more like what will the media landscape look like in seven years time? We know they can do top gear, but will they be able to respond quickly enough to whatever turns out to be the new TikTok? Ride, the urban mobility podcast is brought to you by Covetic and Pay by Phone. Learn more about Ride podcast partners at www.covetic.com and www.paybyphone.co.uk. This episode of Ride was recorded and produced by Martin Strong with marketing support from Natalie Webster. You can subscribe to Ride wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to share it, like it and give it a rating. Sign up to the Ride LinkedIn page and check out our website for episode notes and links and the Ride podcast blog at www.ridemobilitypodcast.com. <laughs>